Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm here today with Nathan Ludwig to discuss Tetsuo, the Iron Man. Now, this is not the Iron Man you might think of. This is the Iron Man, right? Right. And it's not Tetsuo from Akira either. This is something completely different. (laughs) Yeah. So when you said that, I was like, Tetsuo! And you just (laughs) stared at me. And and then I was like, oh, this isn't Akira. Okay. (laughs) I had to think to myself. In my head, I was like, oh, no. She has no idea what she's in for. (laughs) Didn't know. Didn't know. And I think that's the best way to go into this movie, right? You shouldn't Mm -hmm. know. Don't look at IMDb. Don't look at any images. Nope. Proceed directly to your video vendor of choice and hit play. I think the number one selling point for me when I was reaching out to some of my friends afterwards, after watching this, was like, hey, it's only like an hour and seven minutes. Yeah. I don't know about you, but that was a huge selling point to me. Sometimes I think more movies need to be an hour and seven minutes. Sometimes uh, there's something to be said for the sake of brevity, you know? Absolutely. It's something I want to talk about more because um, I, I, in my research came across like it, it wasn't I, I kept wondering why I was like, oh, didn't he not have enough funding? And it turns out that the reason it was so short is because he's a perfectionist or the director. Mm-hmm. He just cut everything he didn't like. And I, I thought I thought as a film festival director, you would probably appreciate that mindset. <laughs> Yeah, yes, you do see trends and patterns as a festival director, especially when you watch 800 films in mm-hmm. six months. Uh, yeah, you do. You do tend to see where I've, I look back on some of my notes for judging along with Chad's notes and some of the shorts were like, this is you have a 40 minute short film. Why didn't you just add 15 minutes or whatever, 20 minutes and make it a, a feature? There's not enough here or, you know, vice versa. You know, you have a 120 minute feature film and half of it is just filler it's just padding it's like somebody driving somebody walking there's no there's no need for it it's like oh my god we don't have enough for a feature let's add these scenes of just nothing (laughs) nobody (laughs) no one will know (laughs) no thank you i can't so like here's the thing i can't imagine adding filler because of all the times i've spent you know wailing as i hit you know, control X or command X or, you know, whatever delete, you know, whatever I'm cutting something, the pain of cutting is such a teacher. I don't know. It, but then again, it's really hard to see filler in your own work because you think every, every single scene is crucial. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, so anyway, I, do, for- I do a lot of writing. I, I've been getting into a lot of writing fiction and I find that like when I first started, I'm like, everything I write is amazing. No, mm-hmm. no one's not going to want to read this passage of nothing. <laughs> and then I'll send it to my friends for, for editing. And they're like, you don't need any of this. And I'll take this part and put it at the beginning and then cut that part. And then I'm like, but, but the words, they're, <laughs> they're so good. And sometimes it doesn't matter. If it's not serving the story, get rid of it. Even if it's the best written passage you've ever created. Yeah. So, so do you know about the tap dancing scene in this movie? The tap dancing scene in this movie. So there was, um, so the first woman in the scene, the girl with the glasses, I can't remember her name actually. Oh yes. Yes. They, that was one of, that was like one of the only things that was cut that everyone pretty much 
is sad about um she choreographed apparently she quote spent a lot of time working on the choreography for a tap dancing scene and the director Sukumoto he cut it because it felt too different from the rest of the film and I can understand why but darn it I feel like I just wanted to see a slice of that you know just kind of like bizarre funny kind of a scene or or more yeah just, I think so yeah I wish I could well we will never know honestly we'll never know. So, um Nathan, I'm going to give a quick intro for those who don't know this name and this voice. Nathan Ludwig is a Richmond-based filmmaker and horror nerd who works as a writer-director of Farmwig Productions, specializing in action, comedy, martial arts. He does screenwriting. They do event filming. They do it all. Just search for Farmwig Productions. He got his Bachelor's of Film in 2010 from Full Sail University, where he met Chad Farmer, who I interviewed for episode 44 of this podcast on Dark Angel. Mm-hmm. He's also... The festival director of Genre Blast Film Festival, which happens every Labor Day at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. For right now, you know, never know, but I'm that's kind of the vibe. Labor mm-hmm. Day, keep it in mind. I was lucky enough to go to year six of the festival, right? Is year six? Genre Blast six, yes. Six V one. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who know Roman numerals, my mind was honestly blown. All of the great selections, horror, action, sci-fi. You don't get I'll just be honest, you don't always get a lot of good sci-fi service at these festivals. And I was really, really, really pleased by that. The standout film for me when I was there was We're Not Here to F Spiders, which is not the full (laughs) title by Josh Reed, but they were all amazing films. So uh, Nathan, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I was very flattered when you wanted me to come on your podcast because it sounded like a fun time. And so far it is. Oh, that's great. We'll see how it goes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I, I knew... Because on your website and on the Genre Blast page, you have Robocop, Predator, Aliens, and Looper all in a row in your favorite films. So I was really felt touched by that. Um, I just want to know, you know, knowing this is a sci-fi podcast, why did you choose this film? Why did I choose Tetsuo? Yeah. Uh, Well, Tetsuo represents a lot of things for me. Uh, It represents my love of Asian cinema. Uh, Japanese-Korean cinema is my favorite, probably my favorite two countries to discover film. Uh, Also, this represents the kind of avant-garde experimental filmmaking I appreciate. Um, And also, this is the kind of movie that you would stumble upon, especially back then, and go, what the heck did I just watch? And And it reinvigorates your love to go out there and discover more things, which is kind of brings it full circle to me being a festival director and discovering films that nobody else has seen potentially and championing them and playing them at your festival for other people to watch. It's very gratifying and exciting experience. So that's kind of why Tetsuo represents a lot of things I love about film and why I picked it. Um, How did you watch it the first time? I rented it on VHS. Um, Wow. When I was growing up, I was not a huge cinephile. I was just, you know, meat and potatoes, Back to the Future, Star Wars, Gremlins, Mm -hmm. you know, the the usual, which is Mm -hmm. all all well and good. I did not discover um, independent and uh, international cinema until probably about high school. I got a job at a movie theater. That was my first job as an usher, worked my way up to a projectionist, worked there for like three and a half years. Um, And I discovered all these, you know, offbeat films that I had never even heard of before or would never had a desire to watch before. And that opened the doorway to all these other films that I would have walked by in the video store and picking up a copy of 
you know, starting with like Reservoir Dogs or Fargo and then going even further by watching like uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and then going. Oh, my God. F- one of my favorites. That's you so know, good. absolutely. And uh, watching stuff like, gosh, I wish I had a list. I should have made a list of all. But but Tetsuo is is representative of the kind of independent genre underground films. Like some people say Eraserhead is their like their go to for like a weird experimental film. And there's nothing wrong with Eraserhead. But for me, Tetsuo is my Eraserhead. Like this is. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'll be honest. This makes this makes Eraserhead look like Gone with the Wind to me. Like mm-hmm. it's like so long and slow. And like mm-hmm. this movie is is so compact and strong. And it just kind of like in a weird way, respectful of the viewer, even though it's like completely disrespectful of like every human value. Um, (laughs) Anyway, let me give you guys a really quick summary of what this movie is, even though I said you shouldn't read anything about it before you go see it. Released in 1989, Tetsuo the Iron Man was directed by Shinya Tsukamoto. It is a body horror fever dream, a black and white cyberpunk cult classic. In this film, a salaryman accidentally kills a man called the Metal Fetishist and embarks on a nightmarish journey as he turns into a beast made of metal. In this, we have classic robot-style fights, as in kaiju robot fights, surreal stop-motion, and a very, very bloody intercourse scene, all within 67 minutes. It's incredibly unique and asks the question, when does technology go too far? Yeah, I couldn't stop saying the words man versus the machine like throughout the movie as I was watching. Uh, So, Nathan, you touched on something really powerful about your work with Genre Blast. Can you talk about why independent cinema matters in regards to this movie and why it stands out to you? Independent cinema matters. it's, It's always mattered. It always will matter no matter how many, you know, big budget tentpole franchises there are that kind of eat up the space at the box office, there's always going to be a need to make independent film. As long as people are, are curious and creative and they want to express themselves, you're, it's, it's always going to be there. What, at what level remains to be seen? But I mean, independent cinema is there if you want to find it. I see people always complaining, oh, there's never any good movies. They don't make them like they used to. That's that phrase. They don't make them like they used to. I hate it when people say that. That's my mm-hmm. least least favorite phrase. I can pick out a great movie in every year since the beginning of cinema. It's mm-hmm. you have to be looking for that stuff. You can't mm-hmm. just sit there and go, OK, what's coming out this Friday? Well, that doesn't look good. Well, then there's no good movies. Well, you're not you're not you're not putting forth the effort. These people are putting forth the effort to make the films. You're not putting forth the effort to, to find them. And I, I find that to be a problem when I see a lot of people moaning about the Oscar nominations or there's never anything good to watch. It might not be the movies that are a problem. It might be you that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. we. I mean, we're living in a world where the outlets that are available to us are consolidating unlike they ever were before. And it's it's easy to to, to moan about, oh, there's not as much funding. You know, the, the 90s were so great. But it's just Disney. <laughs> that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a really interesting take is that it's actually the onus of the viewer to do their research. Um, well, like, what should they do? Um, I think this is where film critics and film historians come in. 
I, I don't really listen to film critics when they review Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I don't, that's like a more of a consumer report. Like we know that that movie is going to make, <laughs> that movie is going to make a ton of money and you're either going to go see it or not. You know, like the big budget films mm-hmm. are going to be fine without critics. Like we've seen mm-hmm. that, that, that critics don't matter when it comes to big budget film, like Venom. I think Venom yeah. has like one of the lowest ratings for a big budget film ever, but it made a ton of money because people wanted to see Venom. Yeah. So, yep. so I think critics should focus more on the independent and international films. And they, some of them do a really great job. You got to find those critics. You got to seek them out. And, you know, they're on they're on Twitter. They're on social media. They're there. If you want to, you know, just Google, you know, film critics, independent cinema, uh, the podcasters like yourself that are trying to spread the word about mm-hmm. um, independent and international genre. I mean, for me, it's genre cinema, but any kind of cinema is great mm-hmm. as long as it's independent and or, or and or international. Um, it's there. The information is there. We have this thing called the Internet, and you can pretty much find anything you want to out as, if you know what you're looking for. So it, you just got to put it forth the effort. You can't just go log on to your Netflix page and pick something and think that that's an independent film. <laughs> that, that algorithm has been designed for like the most popular films, you know, and in your front page. So you need to dig a little deeper and and go in your Netflix account and search for independent film or international film, Korean films, you know, or whatever it is. You'll find it. You just have to look for it. Unfortunately, it's not just going to be there in your face. That's where all the mm-hmm. popular stuff is going to be. And I feel like yeah. some people just don't make the effort, unfortunately. Well, we, I think it's easy to like misunderstand how the market works and how it's changing when you're a consumer, because a lot of like what you're aware of is the result of, of you know, equal size budget going to the marketing as was to the production of the film. Right. If Shang-Chi cost $178 million to make, they spent $178 million on ads. Absolutely. Right? That's why. And so that's what you're saying, like independent cinema needs independent support to get breakthrough. I think what you mentioned, I think is helpful, which is let's zero it. Start with the thing you like, then find the niche that you love. Right. Mm-hmm. I, as soon as I saw alien, I was like, this is my life. This is who I am, you know? And so ever, <laughs> you know, it's like, you just kind of keep following the thing that works for you. And then along the way you might watch a bunch of action films or whatever genre we're not here to F spiders is, I guess, found footage. Right. Yeah. Like I, I would have never seen that movie if I hadn't gone to that festival. I'm so glad I did because I think about that movie all the time. <laughs> like, it's so good, isn't it? It's so good. I don't know how you can get such good performances from like ceiling mounted cameras. Oh, okay. Anyway, I'm, I don't want to get too off track. So let's talk about our man Shinya here. Um, would you love to have him come to one of your festivals? Have you ever interviewed him? I have never interviewed him, but boy, would I love to have someone like Shinya Tsukamoto at our festival that it would just make my head explode. Um, we, we, we haven't really invited a lot of filmmakers to come to genre blast. We've kind of been focusing more on the filmmakers that are played at the festival and just focusing on creating kind of like a weekend long experience mm-hmm. that, that if you come from the beginning to the end, you kind of see a like, it's like almost kind of like a narrative, like an arc. And we mm. try we try not to repeat ourselves too much either. So that way you can see, like, if I'm at the awards ceremony and I reference something that happened on Thursday, it's, there's a, you know, a lot of people will be like, okay, yeah, I remember that because I was there for that. And it's kind of like a destination kind of thing that we're building. Um, one of the things that I want to do is invite other filmmakers that are not necessarily be a part of the festival and kind of play their films as, and, and do like kind of a repertory screening. Uh, we had a couple 
plans of that fall through, which kind of discouraged me a little bit from doing it. But I kind of do want to get back into it and getting someone like Shinya Tsukamoto or like a Shion Sono or a Takashi Miike to come to the festival. Like, uh, like uh, it would just be like the the end all be all for me. Oh, yeah. He's the more I learn about him, the more interested I like. I, I went down kind of the deep dive learning about his childhood and just his work. I mean, he's been there's been casual discussion of, you know, Tetsuo 4, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's been 17 years or something since the last one. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, because I mean, the reason I ask about independent cinema is this is such an independent film when you watch it. It's, it. That's what might shock you is you're used to this level of production that is kind of unrealistic for the layman. And in a lot of ways you could say this is, I mean, it, it, like in a way, it feels like a student film sometimes, yes. right? Or it feels it, but but I think it's really important to see stuff like this because it's completely unencumbered by a producer saying no and a studio saying no, and as a result, it is an, it's, a, it's a piece of art, right? It's mm-hmm. terrifying and disgusting. I mean, if you're not into body horror, don't watch this movie. <laughs> no, don't do it. <laughs> um, like the opening scene, it starts so fast. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, you know, in a safe and family safe as we can, the kind of um, this quote from him, which is, what was your idea when when he was asked, what was your kind of original conception? What's the plot behind why you wanted to make Tetsuo the Iron Man? He said, at first, I just wanted to make an erotic film. That was what he said. And like, stop me right there. I was like, oh, <laughs> you just <wanted laughs> to make it. And then he says the genre was a science fiction horror so there's these kind of erotic elements that I think are really strong in in large part because of the performances of the actress, um, Kei Fujiwara, who actually ended up doing a lot of things like camera work. And she let everybody in the film stay at her apartment and they filmed at the apartment mm-hmm. and the scene with a, uh, I don't even know how to say this. There's a large male organ that's like a giant, oh, I can't even do it. It's like a giant drill. There's a scene where they drill a hole in the wall. They drilled a hole in her wall. You know, yeah. like this woman did such a good performance. I just want to ask, you know, you also worked on a, I don't want to say erotic horror, a film that was very bizarre uh, called PMS. Um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between that independent film and Tetsuo? Uh, erotic is probably the last word I would use to describe <laughs> PMS. Well, what about Tetsuo? Is that an erotic film for you? I, I think it is. Um, it's definitely, yeah, I got to be careful what I describe here. Um, <laughs> no, it's so hard. Yeah. That, the whole, there's a whole scene in, in um, the apartment uh, where basically the gist of it is the main character is kind of a, uh, you know, like a, like a, like an office worker, an office drone basically. And he, his girlfriend, they go for a drive and they, something bad happens and they go back to their apartment and they have this very prolonged lovemaking scene where when you're watching it, you're both grossed out. And some people would say titillated. I don't know if that's, it, it yeah, depends on the person, I think. Okay. Yeah. It, it can, definitely walks it can the be line. both at the same time. There's yeah. some comedy. It's bizarre, but there is some kind of eroticism to it for sure. There's a dance. Um, There's a dance. There's a scene where food is being fed to another person and Mm -hmm. it's nails on a chalkboard combined with what? (laughs) And, and then that morphs into even more transformation on his part. 
and then it results in like you mentioned earlier um <laughs> a very bloody death scene that's symbolic for sex uh like i said i, I can't go into too much detail <laughs> this hopefully this will serve as wanting to see the movie and just figure out what we're talking about but that yeah. entire scene for me is possibly the best scene in the film just because of how many tones it turns on itself and how many times you're like going wait a minute what mm -hmm. and then it, then mm -hmm. it morphs into something else and then it morphs mm -hmm. into something else and then by the time it reaches the end i mean this is like in a 67 minute movie this is like a 15 minute scene so mm -hmm. it's a it's a big chunk of the film and by the time it gets to the end you are so confused but kind of in a good way that you makes you wonder why more movies don't mess with you like like this well it it's so obvious it's because this is pure independent surreal thought mm -hmm. right like it's like how did this guy manage to make something that was so clearly from his brain and of course with the help of his friends so shinya worked at a what he called the kaiju theater he started like a kaiju community theater mm -hmm. and all of his friends would make costumes and that's where he met all the actors who played in this film so he had a little bit of like a you know gang that helped him put this together so it's not all him but like why don't more movies mess with me like this? I don't know. Maybe they're not brave enough. What do you think, Nathan? Well, I also think that a lot of people don't like to be messed with like that. A lot of mm. people, unfortunately, I've been to screenings of films where I am into it. Like, for example, like I went to a don't ever go to a free screening of anything because you will get <laughs> like I used to do those GoFobo screenings. And I thought this was like I hit the jackpot. I get to go to a free screening ahead of time with my fellow cinephiles. Eh, wrong. <laughs> It's it's freeloaders that just want to go see a free movie. And I went to go see a screening of the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis, which I love that movie so much. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. And the first time I watched it, I was like enraptured by it. I was like in its spell. And by the time the movie was over, there was dead silence in the theater. Nobody was like laughing at it if they hated it. But as soon as the movie ended, everybody booed. And they were like, <gasps> no. they were like, they were like, that'll be in the dollar bin. I heard somebody say, and I was so mad. I wanted to fight somebody like, <sighs> Because that movie is so beautiful and so sad in a good way. And I was just like, this is my new favorite movie of the year. And I can't believe that some people don't want to be, they just want to have a story told to them, which is fine. But it's like beginning, middle, end, good guy, bad guy, end. And then they just want to go back to their lives and go back to work. And they don't want to think about things too much. Because if you think about things too much, it takes away from the other stuff that's going on in their lives. And you need the brain power to be able to do whatever you do, be a rocket rocket scientist or, or drive a bus, whatever it is. A lot of people don't, they want to have everything explained to them beginning, middle and end. And they want to have it. They don't want to be like, well, what happened to that guy? Well, did they, did they fall in love? They want to be told everything that happens in the movie. So they don't have to think about it. And I think that's kind of sad to, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I like to be able to connect the dots at the end. I like ambiguous endings. Um, oh, me too. Like the ending of The Sopranos, Chef's Kiss. I don't want to know. You know, like, the, but I think that's just because of critical thinking, right? Mm -hmm. How often are we taught critical thinking? If you weren't taught critical thinking, and no one in your life is interested in in asking those questions, and you're and you like to be force fed content, that in, I mean, sometimes I watch content that is like making me actively stupider. Do you know? And I feel <laughs> and I feel offended by that. Sometimes I seek said content out. You know, like mm -hmm. sometimes you just want to, you know, hit the bliss of the void. Um, yeah, that's a really deep point that you're making. I, I actually have started going to some of those free screenings and they're really fun when it's like a horror movie. I thought yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fun yeah. when everyone's like getting into it. 
but that that experience would have made me very sad. Yeah. But anyway, you you yourself have endeavored to produce some uh, really out there films, and I just wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about like your experience working on sets a little bit, and like, has there any? Would you say that this movie has influenced any of your work or your writing? It influences me and it influences Chad, who's my co-writer, co-director on or the films that we made. It influences us. Excuse me. It influences us in a way that the ind- independent spirit influences us to be able to go out there and say, we have a set amount of money. We can do what we want. We are our own producers. We, we're not going to be told no. This is what we're going to do. We've got a long day of shooting ahead and we're going to get it done. And that feeling of accomplishment when you're working with actors and you're working with other people on the crew to come together and get something done that you set out to do is very satisfying. I really like it's, it's a kind of work that I have not been able to see replicated in my life, even in the film festival world, going out there and shooting a short film and getting those pages done and getting those days done is a very gratifying feeling. And then going back and seeing what you've done and then realizing that it's not as good as what you thought it was going to be because you're your own worst critic. It's just like it's that cycle of of creative, create and destroy, create and destroy kind of thing. Or no, I like the cycle that's um, this is amazing. I'm a genius. This is terrible. This is worth everything. Actually, this might be okay. Actually, I'm a genius. And then you go back around (laughs) in the circle. This is the worst thing I've ever done. This is terrible. Actually, it's okay. Oh, my gosh. I'm a genius. Just that's like how it goes. You know, <laughs> like, it's just funny. This is true for all creatives. For me, uh, I started out in fine art. And once I started participating in film, it was the closest I'd come to playing music where you're actually collaborating. And the the high of collaborating with people is it, just untouchable, right? When you're on a set and you're all working together to make this thing more gory, more fun, more different, more interesting, more beautiful, whatever it is, and everyone's ideas come together to make it better. Oof. It's just... It's fantastic. That that moment in between cut, I mean, action and cut, when somebody is reading the lines that you guys worked on and you're, it's, it's this weird in between space. It's like you're in another dimension when, when, when people are acting in between that action and cut where you're almost in another plane of existence and then you call cut and then it's back to reality. And you're like, wow, this is like an out of body experience. This is weird. People are actually reading our lines and doing what we say. Like, and, they, and they're not telling us to go F off, you know? <laughs> well, speaking of calling cut and break, I'm going to call break for one second and remind you that you're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. My name is Cameron Kitt. I'm here with Nathan Ludwig, and we're talking about the film Tetsuo the Iron Man the Japanese cult classic from 1989. Now, speaking of what we were just talking about, playing about being on set, Shinya had a really amazing quote um, that I really liked where he said, you know, there's no such thing as a favorite role on set. I love playing every role. I think every role is important. I love doing every part of being on a film set. And it's kind of a mindset that you don't hear as often from directors, right? This kind of uniform equality across the board. Mm. Um, Do you have a favorite role to play on a film set if you had to choose one? Um, Well, I'm a writer by by trade and by DNA. So I'm always going to side with the screenwriter when it comes to anything. 
Um, I think that I'm a better writer than I am a director. I'm always working at being a better director. I'm very hard on myself and very unsure of myself as a director. Um, but I'm pretty confident in my writing abilities. So I'm always trying to reconcile my level of writing skill with my level of directing skill, which is always below my writing skill. And I'm always trying to find a way to, to raise my game. Um, and I find that pre-production is key. Pre-production, pre-production, pre-production. You can't plan enough. And I think that's, I think pre-production is what makes directors better, to be honest. Mm. Um, there's really nothing that you can substitute proper planning for. And independent film, it's not always that way. Sometimes you got to rush, rush, rush. You want to get this film done before, you know, your spouse has a baby or you got to get this film done before you go away to college or you got to get this film done because this money is here now and it's not going to be here in six months or whatever it is. You don't know what's going to happen. And it's a very tough a balancing act to follow um, to be able to be an independent uh, filmmaker, but also feel like you have enough preparation and planning. Um, and, and that's where big budget filmmaking comes in. You have the money and you have the luxury to have as much pre-planning pre-production as you want. But then I see these here, there's horror stories about, about these big studio productions that only have like six weeks to pre pre-produce a big, huge blockbuster film. And it's just like, why would you do that to yourself? You have mm. you have the ability to pre-plan and pre-produce this and you're not. And I feel like that's such a wasted opportunity. Um, I would kill to have six weeks of pre-production uninterrupted on a low budget film. Oh that my gosh, I know. Never happens, never happens. You have like, so what, Nathan, would you mind for those who are listening who might not know what the, these terms mean, who might not be as, what is pre-production? what would they actually be doing during this? And maybe could you give me an example of how planning or not planning affected some of the films you've worked on? Um, Pre-production basically is the time spent before you actually show up on set to shoot the movie. So it's everything from writing the screenplay, which is usually first, it should be. Uh, don't, don't, <laughs> don't write the screenplay while you're shooting the film. That's a terrible idea. Sometimes the location comes first and then the screenplay, but almost always it's the you're, screenplay Right, first. right. That's a good point. Location and screenplay. Um, and you're also just kind of, you know, you're casting your, your uh, actors. You're, you're looking for, um, you know, if you have any special effects, costumes, props, you're, you're kind of coordinating your crew and getting them together, uh, working on your shot list. If you have storyboards, you're doing your storyboards. You're making sure that everything that goes into creating the film when you're on set is ready to go in theory <laughs> that, but, and then when you show up on set to shoot, everything goes out the window because you have to change your location or an actor quits or you have to rewrite the screenplay. And, but it's good to have that plan in place. That way you have something to jump off of. Yeah. I just interviewed Anna and Emily, two amazing filmmakers who actually won an award at your festival yes. um, for best animated short. And it's the classic story. Every short film has one of these big, huge blowups. So they had three months of pre-production on their short where they had been working with a cinematographer where they didn't have a shot list or a storyboard because they had kind of written it all out and planned it out with them. And then that person quit the day of, right? So all that pre-planning mm -hmm. goes out the window. Another good example might be, I just watched the movie Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman. Mm -hmm. watched it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. But she had time in preparation for her character to go to a mental hospital and be mm -hmm. with characters and watch them break down and, you know, become the character right would that be pre-production because absolutely they did, they did that before they got there um i really i couldn't find much on the pre-production of this film tetsuo but i think the thing that stands out the most is the costumes 
Yes. I, I read somewhere that he put together a lot of spare parts from old TVs. Oh, cool. Uh, to, to make that the metal transformations, because he basically said that's all I could find was I just went through junk and just put that stuff together. And I think for him, the pre-production phase was basically doing the play um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's yes. based on his play. So he made yes. he felt he was confident in a way he could just go ahead and shoot it since he did the play already. Um, that could be it. And it's his singular vision. That's what's great about this yeah. movie is that it's just him. It's just his vision. He's bringing people together to help him achieve that vision, which is always important. But yeah. at the end of the day, there's nobody telling him, that's a dumb idea. Maybe you should cut that. It's a little extreme. He knows what he wants, but for better or for worse. And I would rather watch a movie that is that is a director's vision as opposed to, you know, decision by committee, a corporate committee. Make sure this has a happy ending or make sure this, you know, this doesn't go too far. Make sure it doesn't alienate the normies or whatever. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, we got to we got to think of our base, you know, Uh, and so many films I I saw that I watched a YouTube video essay that I really liked called the era of passable films. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's really what happens when you make a film that's good for everybody. It no, it just becomes passable. This is quite an alienating film, um, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't challenge yourself to watch it because there are some really funny moments for me. the, The thing that makes it really unique besides the costumes, which are just incredible, right? Like this. There's multiple characters turning into these kind of like metal robotic automaton beast hybrid. It's, I mean, it is very Akira. I can't help it. Like this kind of bulbous, there's so much, there's so much going on there with the design and the, the like unique look of the characters, but those stop motion chase scenes are so beautiful. Yes. I love it's it so just, much. Like, like you would never, I don't know. Like the only person I could think of in the mainstream doing that is Michelle Gondry, and he's not really in mainstream, right? You just like don't see things like that being utilized. I'm pretty sure they utilized it because they couldn't afford to do a chase scene. No. <laughs> but he had used a lot of stop motion in his first film. Oh gosh, it's called like the Tin Man. I gotta look it up. Um, but yeah, like, what did you think of those that use of stop motion? I loved those scenes where he's kind of traveling through the streets and it's looking like, yeah, it's looked like he's moving at an incredible rate, but they use that kind of stop motion and sped up footage to make it look like he's traveling through Tokyo or whatever. Um, That's fantastic stuff. And all the techniques, like one of my favorite effects is the bubbling effect that's coming up from his back when he's, when he's got his jacket on. It's so good. I'm sure it's done very simply. It's probably, probably like, oh, it's just like, you know, balloons or something or whatever it is. But it looks so cool. And that's it all that matters. So you know, that's a great effect. Um, but that's the thing about independent filmmaking. You got to have you got to use your imagination. You got to you got to get creative. This We have a wheelbarrow, uh, a broken sprinkler and a stuffed donkey. Let's see what we can come up with. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. Did you find yourself worrying about the actor getting poked or sliced in the eye while he's wearing the costume? I couldn't, I have the dad, I have the dad gene where I was just like, Oh, I I was studying, I studied sculpture. So I've done a lot of metal work and I've gotten my fair of slices and I've done my fair share of of metal related art. And it's not for me because I have, (laughs) I have skin. um, Yeah. Yeah. I flesh. So I just, I found myself really impressed with the lengths that these people went through knowing that that costume probably didn't fit great um probably didn't feel great to wear um and i guess you can kind of tell in the performance because there's a lot of 
wailing but it's like it just yeah it's just visually really stunning and unique and and the the pieces and parts i don't i don't i've never seen a costume like it that i can think of you know there's a lot of stuff that this movie makes me think of the style but i've never seen these kind of costumes before because they're made by artists who were making these costumes for an independent theater um mm-hmm. yeah I just kept thinking of the the fluids because I've been on sets with lots of blood and other stuff and I've been stuck to a floor uh, mm. with from fake blood. So I'm seeing like them, you know, all the costume pieces, but also they've got fluid, you know, coming out of whatever's coming out of their mouth. And smoke. Whether it's smoke and Alka-Seltzer or whatever it is and then blood, you know, and then just imagining all that blood sticking to the costume and then just being all hot and nasty. And that that apartment scene is very sweaty, too. So it's just saying i don't like being moist so (laughs) there was a there was definitely a time while watching this film where i went he's sweaty yeah (laughs) and i overheat very easily so i can only imagine being on that set i'd be like guys i'm dying here can can you get me out of here please i was just like oh my god worse than claustrophobia is being like hot and like wet and not being able to do (laughs) anything about it like ugh. Well, um, a lot of people on the crew felt the same way as you, Nathan. By the mm-hmm. end of the filming, every crew member that he had cajoled had left the set. Unfortunately, you know, being an artist with a singular vision does kind of come at the cost of a lot of friendships if you're doing it, kind of putting everything on the line. Researching Shinya, he had a really interesting childhood. His dad was the kind of classic ad um in Japan called salary man, right? Just businessman, right? His mm-hmm. dad was in advertising and would come up to him as a child and, and say, like, if he was drawing when he was a kid, like seven or eight, he would say, your drawing is meaningless. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's the kind of dad he had. He said, like, art is worthless. And if you're not number one, it's basically the same as being last. And if you're number two, it's the same as being last. Like, that was the childhood, he, the house he was raised in. And, and mm-hmm. his choice to follow independent film was met with tremendous resistance from his family. And I just think that's actually, sadly, a pretty common story, right? For a lot of independent artists who are willing to kind of stake their entire livelihood. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, and it's not a cultural thing. That happens in every country across the across the world. Why aren't you a lawyer? Why aren't you a doctor? Like these, and there's nothing wrong with being those roles. But to me, I don't know. This might bother some people. If there's no art in the world, what's the point? Yeah. What's the What's the point of existing if there's no creativity and there's no art? It's all just business. That sounds horrible. That sounds mm-hmm. absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. And people that say, oh, I don't want my kid to be so-and-so, they turn around and they go watch a movie or a TV show. I'm like, who do you think made that? Like, <laughs> somebody's <laughs> child made that. Like, you know? Yeah. Either, either support them or get out of the way. <laughs> it's hard because my family, they were very, very supportive of my art. Growing all growing up, I went to an art school, but the, when I graduated, and the day I graduated, my parents said, so what are you going to do to make money? And I was like, you were here the whole time. We, I thought we knew this was, <laughs> this is not how this goes. Like, it's not, this is not a money-making venture, but, you know, we do what we have to to get by because, like, your point about art is this movie is talking about themes. It's making a statement about society. It's making a statement about technology, about mm-hmm. industrialism. And and how that changes us. And, and it's it's really deep, <laughs> honestly. It is. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be sussed out. It's felt like mm. you, wa- you watch. Everybody's always so concerned with what is the meaning of this film? You go Google something, any movie that has any kind of artistic bent to it. Oh, what does this movie mean? 
it doesn't necessarily need a book report. Just watch the movie and feel it. Wait, do people really do that? Yeah, they do. No, where was your English teacher? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we, I, I could go on and on about how Tetsuo is man versus machine and like biology can't be stopped unless it's destroyed and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, how does this movie make you feel mm-hmm. like on a subconscious level? Mm-hmm. You can you can get all that stuff just by sensing a film, just by watching it and letting the sound and the picture per- permeate you, you know, and it's 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 not that hard. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it, it kind of is that hard, though, because to release yourself over to art is is a vulnerable position. It is. It, and I feel like, yeah, some people are not willing to do that. They don't want to. You see this a lot on Twitter. People think that they're above films in general, like, oh, my God, can you believe they, this movie did this or or this movie? Oh, this is my favorite. It, people judging a movie based on what they wanted it to be uh, uh, instead of what the movie actually is. Hmm. That that drives me crazy. It's just accept the movie on its own terms. Whether you liked it or not, it's fine. If it didn't work for you, fine. But don't judge it based on some preconceived notion that you have this movie should have been. Watch the movie and then decide, you know, is this, does this work for me? Not this movie wasn't what I want it to be. I see that a lot and it's very sad. Well, yeah, we criticize art if it makes us feel something. And if sometimes if it's a thing we didn't want to feel, then we lash out at the art. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody who studied fine art, going to museums can be painful when I get the reaction of like, I could have done that. Right. Mm. That's kind of a similar thing or like, oh, it could have been this Drew Bolduck. He's a filmmaker who did some really great trauma films. I don't know. You've probably oh, seen. I, I know Drew. He's oh, yeah. He, he said something really profound on one of my episodes. He said, I don't think you can truly criticize a film until you've made a film. And I was like. Wow. Because the people who are made a film and been there and had to deal with those last minute problems and budget cuts and editing issues and the hard drive died and the lighting's not right and whatever, Mm -hmm. they don't say, oh, this wasn't what I wanted it to be when they watch a movie, generally. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's, yeah, Drew is... um... Drew has some really good takes on film and he's been there. He's been in the trenches of filmmaking, so he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's gone all the way. Um, Speaking of being in the trenches, you're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. You, my friend, are in the trenches of truly independent media, or if you're listening on whatever podcast app, thank you for seeking out this independent content. My name is Cameron Kitt. I'm the host of this year podcast called They Came From Outer Space, and I'm here with Nathan Ludwig talking about the sci-fi cult classic Tetsuo the Iron Man in 1989. Yes. Yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 67 minute movies, why don't they exist everywhere? I just like I I don't know, like maybe it's just that my phone has really gotten to me. But an hour long film I can do no problem. Like literally no problem. It's just I don't know. There's something so satisfying. So I want to come back to this, you know, as a festival director, having seen thousands of films, having screened hundreds of films in your career and having helped lots of independent filmmakers, what advice can you give other independent filmmakers about filmmaking based on this movie? Go with your gut. Don't listen to other people's opinions of what you should do. 
Um, I mean, obviously, if you have money behind it and you have to deal with producers, I mean, that's just a necessary evil. Pick your battles and pick the hill you want to die on and don't fight them every step of the way. But if you are the captain of your own ship and you are in control of the money and you are in control of the story, don't second guess yourself and don't try to guess what people are going to like. Don't follow trends. This especially goes for screenwriters. People are like, zombies are hot right now. We got to write a zombie screenplay. Don't do that. Just write the story mm. you want to want to write. Make the story you want to tell. And you're going to kick yourself later. And if you don't follow your gut and you try to follow a trend or you try to listen to somebody else who's in your ear, don't don't let the sound person, don't let the DP try to tell you what story you want to tell. If they want to give you advice in their lane, that's fantastic. But don't let anyone else step on you when you're making the story that you want to tell, especially at the independent level, you might not get another chance to do that. If you move up, if you move up a rung and you get more money, then you have mm. more producers use this moment now and tell the story you want to tell. Just look at Tetsuo. What committee would ever approve that film? You know, what, what producing committee would ever <laughs> be like, yeah, this, this is good. This works, you know, or a movie like Ricky O the story of Ricky, which is the, one of the most bonkers films I've ever seen. Uh, or just, I mean, Eraserhead is another thing. Eraserhead would never get made by even like Fox Searchlight or Focus Features. That movie is so weird that no one would ever approve it. it, it but it's a singular director's vision. And that's mm -hmm. what matters at the end and, of the day. And it's that fact that it is so unique that makes it so different from everything else, right? The fact that it's so palpably different that makes it so powerful. I think, I don't know. I feel like every filmmaker's been through this. I definitely had multiple people tell me not to go with my gut on a film I was working on. And I regret it so much. And I even wrote that down. I wrote like, I have a notebook and I wrote like big lessons. Like always, I like wrote the same thing. I was like, always go with your gut. And it's just, it's hard because you're thinking, okay, well, multiple people are saying this to me. I want my audience to have this reaction. And I think what you're saying is stop worrying about the pretend audience and make the art that you want to watch. Right. Exactly. This movie, this movie was not appreciated when it was released until it got into a film festival in Europe and then everybody lost their minds over it. And then it, this movie basically kickstarted Japanese genre cinema across the world. Once it was appreciated in the 90s and it got distribution and it was on VHS and it got picked up to be on DVD. Before this, nobody was paying attention to all the amazing Japanese films. I mean, if you think of all the Yakuza and Samurai and and all these weird horror films that came out in the seventies and eighties and nobody was watching them unless you went to these niche film festivals in other countries and Tetsuo comes along and people are like, what? This is like the Japanese eraser head. It's even crazier. And then this movie influenced so many music videos in the nineties. It's not even funny. Like nine inch nails. Hello. Like <laughs> this is, this movie is so influential. I can't stress how influential it is, but when it was first released, the Japanese audience didn't care. They're like, okay, who gives a crap? But you got to find your audience. Go with your gut. And eventually, you know, it'll get discovered, you know? Mm. And that's that's the tough thing about art, though. You never know when it's going to happen. Will it happen after you're dead? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. yes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so hey, hang in there, because it might still happen after you're dead. <laughs> but, that, but that's really powerful advice, is like, only you know what you want to make. But it's so hard to hold true when other people are telling you not to do it. Um, so just like write this down in a note card and keep this like only you can make this story the way you want to make it. Do it now. 
the yes. way that you had said it was so powerful. And then I want to touch on something else though, which is you is this whole idea of the power of the festival. So you are absolutely right. You know, it wasn't until Shinya Tsukamoto got into uh, the festival in Rome. Do you remember what it was called? Oh gosh, I can't remember. Grand Prix. He won, you know, and there's a quote from an interview with him where he's like, with these two Grand Prix, I finally felt comfortable to be a filmmaker. There's Mm -hmm. kind of a paradox in there, right? Which is that, we need to be, we want to be able to make films just for ourselves and feel comfortable having made the thing. But the other side of it is he felt like he finally had a license to be an independent filmmaker, which is his career. I mean, he's been made a career of making these films. Talk about what a role you play with genre blast in, in, in the, the life of the indie filmmaker. Well, I take that role very seriously, you know, uh, I don't want to go so far as to say we're tastemakers because we're not, but Chad and I take our role very seriously as programmers of a festival where, you know, we know that what we pick will set the tone for some festivals that come after us. And we do, I think we do influence some other festivals to play some of the films that we pick like, Oh, John or blast picked uh, this, this film. Maybe we should take a second look at this or take notice when this gets submitted to us. So that does factor into our decisions, but at the end of the day, we just go, what are the, what out of this pool of films, what films do we think will play well together and complement each other over four days of film, of, of a film festival? And sometimes we'll get films that are kind of the same and we kind of have to go, well, which one is going to get cut and which one are we going to pick? And it's very tough sometimes because we'll get like 100 feature films usually. And out of those 100 feature films, there's about 20, 25 that we want to play. And we can only play about a dozen, 12 to 15 tops. And so we have to make tough choices to cut out those other 10 or so films. And, you know, we we, we make it a point to let these filmmakers know, hey, you didn't make it, but we want to let you know that we really liked your film. And it's just only so much space that we can do. You know, if something comes up and somebody else backs out, we'd love to like possibly consider you. But we just want you to know that your film was good. And that seems, and I, it seemed like such a small thing to me, but we would be like, Hey, your film made the first round, you know, the next round you might not get in, but just want to let you know, we really liked your film. And people would just, everybody would respond and go, thank you so much for the communication. It means so much that you uh, at least acknowledge that we even exist before decisions are made. And I was like, wow, you know, just doing something like that means a lot to filmmakers. And I just want them to know Mm -hmm that you're doing a good job and Mm -hmm. we can't we can't play everything but we appreciate you so Mm -hmm. little stuff like that i think some festival directors don't understand the power that they have and that if they just take the time to just do a little bit of extra communication and personalization it goes a long way with filmmakers and they'll remember you and they will submit their next film to you even if they don't get in because they know that you're paying attention and it's not just a machine that's behind the email. It's an actual person that watches these movies and understands and connects with you. So that's yeah. what we, we try to do. Well, I, I wonder if I feel like I don't getting more into this whole world. It seems like a lot of times people who run film festivals are filmmakers, right? Like you, you've made films, you know what the hustle, you know what the hustle's like. So I wonder what the difference is because it it takes an inordinate amount of time no matter what, right? You have to have volunteers, you have to have staff, and then you have to put in, you know, eight hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but the reasons that people justify the non-communication might be what, like, I want to seem more non-judgmental. I don't want to reveal too much about me. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand why, but yeah, over-communication seems like a great rule or just this like basic level of communication. A right? basic level of communication. I've heard stories from about festivals from other filmmakers because, you know, everybody talks about everybody. If you don't think that we do, we do. If other festival directors talk <laughs> talk to other festival directors about terrible filmmakers and terrible etiquette for submitting. And other filmmakers will talk oh. to us about other filmmakers will talk to us about other festivals that they did not have a good experience with or they had right. a good experience with. Everybody talks to each other. Yeah. Um, and the filmmakers just want to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. That's it. Even if they don't get into a fest, they just want to be acknowledged that they, they, you know, submitted their $30, $40 for a feature film or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they're not just being ignored. And then they get a automated notification at the end of the cycle saying you didn't get in. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, okay, well, you know, why, why did I even do that? Like if you get an email from someone saying, Hey, just wanted to update you next round of judging. You made it through. Not, you know, we're, we're still working on the next round, but just let, let you know if you've made it this far, your movie's really good. At this point, we just have to make, we have to pick things based on what room we have for the festival. So if you don't get in after this, it's not because you suck. It's because we don't have enough room and we'd love to play you all. And we just want to let you know that you're awesome. And people love to hear that. They really yeah. do. And it seems like such a small thing, but people really like that kind of stuff. Because I don't envy your position. The I'm sure there have been years you've been doing this for six years coming up on seven. I'm sure there have been years where it was actual physical pain you felt in your body at having to cut some of the, the features. Right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but but there is nonetheless this kind of this necessary importance that being accepted into a festival is a lot of the justification that we need to know that what we're doing matters. For me, the reason that I've didn't know it was going to be so powerful. It's just getting to talk to the other filmmakers. Like I made so many friends. Nathan, I met, I met Ariel Basca at our festival and she's our associate producer on our documentary now. Like, like I like, it was, it's like a dream come true situation. So, you know, as a filmmaker, I can say definitely go to festivals, even if you don't get in because you still can get the same level of networking from just showing up to all the screenings as -hmm. you can as getting in. Like it's, it's just as powerful if you have a business card, but it, it is interesting to me, the kind of it, interplay between the, as a filmmaker, that necessary, the need for the laurel to say, as Shinya said, I, I feel, I feel, I finally feel comfortable as a filmmaker. Um, and I'm really happy that he feels comfortable now because he clearly didn't feel comfortable when he was making that movie. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of anxiety about technology that I would love to get into more, but we're just about at the end. So um, the last question I'm going to have for you is where can I find out more about you, your work and genre blast? Um, you can find John or Blast all over social media where, you know, search Facebook for John or Blast Film Festival. We have a page there. That's probably our most active venue because I'm an oldie. Um, you know, I'm in my 40s. So <laughs> Facebook is Facebook is my speed. But uh, we're on we're on Twitter and Instagram, too, at John at John or Blast. Um, one word. And you can find out all the updates and happenings there. Uh, if you're a filmmaker or a screenwriter, we are accepting screenplays and films of all lengths. Um, starting January 3rd. That's when our submissions open for Genre Blast 7. And if you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just look for Nathan Ludwig. All one word? All one word, no. Uh, On Twitter, I'm at Lugenhausen, and Instagram is at Lugenhausen. That's L-O-O-G-E-N-H-A-U-S-E-N. 
Lugenhausen. Oh, cool. I found it. I will say your Instagram is is one of the best for the film festivals I've seen. Um, oh, thank you. So I don't know who does it, but bless them. Bless whoever. Uh, it's, it's, it's a combined effort, but my sister, Reagan Ketterer, is amazing. She's our marketing uh, manager, our, our promotions manager. She does a lot of the graphical stuff. So if you see really cool graphics and photos and whatnot, it's probably from her. So definitely shout out and lots of credit to her. Is she the one that got the belt? It, it is. She she did get the belt. And that she was a total surprise. Belt. Yeah. Oh, she seems surprised. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Nathan, it's been awesome having you on and talking about Tetsuo. I highly recommend finding this film for you listening uh, wherever you can. And you've been listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. Nathan, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Uh, this was so much fun. 